Greetings, brothers and sisters. It's been a long time since we have been fully virtual on a Sunday morning. Uh, it's unfortunate that we had to do that this week, but of course we want to look out for the safety of our people. We've had some folks come down with a bug this week, and out of abundance of caution, uh, though it doesn't appear to be anything COVID-related, uh, we wanted to give people a chance to recoup and to get healthy again, and we hope to be back in full force next week. In the meantime, thank you for joining us here on a Sunday morning virtually. It is not the same, but uh, we are hopeful that the Word of God will still be a great blessing to you. It's been a wild week, not just with health concerns, but also with the transition of power in D.C., a lot of unrest. Um, we were not surprised to see so many people up in arms. It's been a very emotional and turbulent transition, but let's continue to pray for those who are in leadership, uh, those who are leaving office, those who are coming into office, asking that God would shepherd our nation through this really critical time and that the people of America might remember uh, the democracy that has made it what, what it is today. Uh, we want to pray that God would help our people to not um, be dismayed by this, to not be enshrouded by fear. We know that the Lord God will never transition out of power. He has always been sovereign and He always remain, remains so. So let's continue to pray for our nation. But we're grateful to be able to gather together today. We hope that the worship, um, the worship email was able to guide you through some songs that you could sing as a family, that you've been in prayer together, and that this time this morning will help you to reflect on and give glory to your Savior. The holiness of the church as representative of the holiness of God is perhaps the driving theme of the whole letter of 1 Corinthians. I want you to consider a verse that we studied some months ago, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 through 17. The Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. If you are the very temple of God, then what you do and what you say reflects upon God. It impacts the testimony of God. God is absolutely, therefore, concerned with the behavior of His people. For they are His, and they bear His image to the world around Him and around us. Puritan Thomas Watson said, Sin in a wicked man is delightful, being in its natural place. But sin in a child of God is burdensome, and He uses all means to expel it. As we've been working through this series in 1 Corinthians, I think the overarching theme of the letter is this, that the people of Corinth have had an exceptionally difficult time keeping themselves pure in the culture within which they lived. And so the Apostle Paul is helping to remind them who they belong to and how they themselves are the temple of the Spirit. Therefore, they need to take every measure to make sure that they do not allow sinfulness and wickedness to dwell within them, that their testimony to Christ might not become defiled. We know how difficult it can be to be holy amidst a culture that is inundated with sin and wickedness. We know that because American society today is exactly that kind of culture. Sin is sheltered and, and celebrated in our nation. The exaltation of self is the default way of life. Idolatry is all around us. and The flesh and its desires seem to dominate the culture. Corinth was a lot like that. It was a culture in many ways not unlike our own culture. You could get away with almost anything there. And to live by a moral standard was truly exceptional rather than the norm. And most of the members of Corinth and the church there came out of that kind of a culture. It was the culture that they were reared in. It was the way of life that they were more familiar with. And so the letter that is called 1 Corinthians was written primarily to help the believers in Corinth fight for that purity for which they were saved, over and against the sin out of which they were saved. Chapter 5 starts a section that addresses some of the particular moral problems that Corinth needed to directly address. So in verses 1 and 2, which we went through last week, 
Paul exposed a very serious sexual sin that was being either tolerated or even worse, perhaps condoned among the Corinthian brothers and sisters. 1 Corinthians verse 1 and 2, chapter 5, by way of reminder, said, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. You see, church, there is a man in Corinth who was committing a kind of immorality that would surprise even the pagans of Corinth who were surprised by very little, mind you. He is not repentant about his sin. He is not ashamed of his actions. He's not willing to turn away from what he is doing that is outwardly wrong and opposed to Scripture. And so the Apostle Paul renders a judgment from afar upon that man. Let him who has done this sin be removed from among you. This is the idea of excommunication, the last step of biblical church discipline. Now, details expanding upon that command are shared with us in verses 3 through 5, which we will examine with humble hearts and minds today. Let me read that passage to you, and then we will pray before we study through it. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Please bow with me as we pray over this passage. Almighty God, we expect that you will teach us much as we put our hearts and minds upon what Paul recorded for us here in these pages of 1 Corinthians. We thank you, Lord God, for the direction of your word, which is a guiding light. We know the importance of handling it carefully, Lord God, because many men and women over the ages have taken what is holy and good and true and have twisted it to mean things that it does not mean, and we do not want to do that. And so I ask humbly, Lord God, that you would guide the preaching this morning, that you would bless our hearts with it, that you would grow us, that you would challenge us, Lord God, that we would have a reverence for the holy place that you have brought us to be through the blood of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we would find ways to apply this text personally, that we would not see it as applying only to someone else, someone else who needs correction, Lord God, but that we would see it as an encouragement to our own body, that this church, Lord, might be stronger the more we embrace your word and all the directions that it gives to us. We do this out of reverence for you, Lord God, so help us to be worshipful as we learn together. In Jesus' name, amen. Sin had found a regular home in the church in Corinth. Paul, out of honor for Jesus and love for his brothers and sisters, had to do something about that sin. He had to correct it. He had to direct the church to discipline those who were responsible for it. And that is what chapter 5 is about, and that will be the focus that we put our attention on this morning. But before we really zone in on that focus, there is a detail of this passage that comes across a little strange, and I want to get out in front of it so it doesn't become like a distraction to us. What exactly is Paul saying here in verse 3 when he says, Though absent in body, I am present in spirit. Is this some sort of existential peak into a spiritual ability that the hyper-Christians of the world can develop? We shouldn't ignore this passage of Scripture. It's very odd, but if we take a moment to try to understand it, I'm confident that we can prevent ourselves from letting this detail overshadow the main point that Paul is driving us at. So have you ever heard someone talk about their spirit in these kind of new-agey ways. You might have heard somebody say, yeah, me and so-and-so, we're soulmates, implying that somehow their souls have a connection that regular human beings don't particularly have. Or maybe you've heard someone say, you've got a kind of an amber-colored spirit or something to that regard. Or maybe 
what do you think your spirit animal is? Now, some of that stuff kind of sounds funny. It might make you chuckle. But there are people out there who put a lot of stock in that kind of quasi-spiritual, mystical insight kind of language. We need to realize that concepts like that are popularized in the media that we watch. They don't start out as teachings or as doctrinal beliefs necessarily, but the more we're exposed to them as ideas or artistic concepts, the more they potentially leak their ideas into what we believe. Or we at least begin to entertain the possibility of them. There's a new movie out, one in the whole universe, and that movie is called Soul. Now there's probably a couple of more, but this is a Pixar movie. Uh, Disney owns Pixar, and this movie Soul has been heralded because of its artistic beauty and creativity. It's the story of a man who dies prematurely before he's able to accomplish his musical dreams, and then he fights in soul form to get back into a body so that he can accomplish what he knows he was designed and made to do. Now, this kind of media, like the movie Soul, has the danger of tilting our perception of unusual texts like this. It it, it creates a very open idea of what may or may not happen to the soul or the spirit, and it's interesting to think along those lines, but if you don't think about this from a scriptural standpoint, you're liable to think about it from a secular standpoint by default. That danger comes not only from exposure to what is false or fictional or make-believe, but it also comes from a lack of exposure to what is true. When we don't let the scripture itself tell us how to think about our spirit, then when we hear people talking about spiritual things in the world, we tend to apply them to our understanding of what the spirit is and does. If you've already filled your mind with that which is what is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, if you're thinking about what is pure and lovely, whatever is commendable and excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, then coming across a strange passage like this, you would already have a biblical worldview by which to interpret it. You would not be subject to the suggestions of dreamers and deceivers and entertainers. The empty mind is easy to fill, so the saying goes. So brothers and sisters, be sure to fill your mind with truth and there won't be so much room for speculation and error. What was Paul trying to convey here? That he has some sort of a power over his spirit whereby he can cause it to leave his body and travel over a great distance that he might visit the Corinthians in some sort of supernatural way? Is that what Paul is saying? We might ask ourselves, do we see anything like that anywhere else in God's word? If we think about Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we might read in verse 10 of chapter 1 that the apostle John was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Today is the Lord's day. You are worshiping the Lord, and I hope that you are also in the spirit, but I'm guessing that your spirit is firmly in your body, sitting on your couch in your living room or somewhere like that. When God revealed this vision of revelation to John, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, And it took him in some sense into the throne room of God where he stood before one like the Son of Man who we know to be Jesus Christ. And Jesus began to give to him messages to seven of the churches of that day. So, we don't know exactly how this happened, but we do know one thing for certain. John was not in Patmos anymore. He was somewhere different, at least in the way that he was perceiving the vision that God was giving to him. I want us to note there, though, that John did not just get out of his body and go somewhere on his own. God initiated and controlled that experience from beginning to end. Another example, 2 Corinthians 12, the apostle Paul himself is speaking of a man, but he's really speaking of himself in a humble third-person kind of way. This man has been caught up to the third heaven, he says. He goes on to describe how whether in the body or out of the body, he does not know. Was this some sort of spiritual adventure outside of Paul's body? He says here that he does not know. He's not exactly sure what happened to him. And it's clear that he was passively caught up, 
that this is something that God caused to happen, much like the Apostle John in Revelation 1. This is not him exerting some kind of special ability of his own. So this passage here in 1 Corinthians does not seem to describe those kind of scenarios where perhaps Paul has left his body intentionally to go and be somewhere else. I don't think that's what it's trying to say at all. Instead, Paul's words likely line up here with what he used a different place in Scripture where he used a very similar kind of wording, Colossians chapter 2. In the letter to the Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, Paul says this, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That seems a little more straightforward, doesn't it? Paul is talking to the church in Colossae. Paul is absent from them in body, and for good reason. When he wrote the letter to the Colossian church, he was writing it from a jail cell. He could not physically go to them. But by saying that he is there with them in spirit, he's essentially saying that he has not stopped caring for them, and he has not stopped desiring to teach them. So the words that he writes on the page that is sent by a messenger to Colossae and then read aloud in the, the, the assembly of the saints, in a way is almost like Paul being there the best he can be. This is much like how we would describe our thoughtfulness to one another today. Though we are separated through much of our day because of the shelter in place that's happening, we are nonetheless not far away from each other in our thoughts and our prayers. I hope that you, church, are calling one another, that you're texting one another, that you're doing all that you can to overcome the imposed separation and distance that has been put between us so that the love that we have for one another might not grow cold during this difficult season. Though we are apart from each other in some sense, we are near to each other in spirit because of the love that we share and because of the Holy Spirit, which is common to each of us who trust in Jesus Christ. So Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 5.3, he says, I am absent in body. He's saying, I cannot be with you right now. He had been with them physically in past days. He had been a part of the inception of that church. He had helped to establish it and to teach them the basic doctrines they needed to, to be safe and to be wise and to be near to the Lord. And then he declares to them, I am present to you in a spiritual sense. Though his body is not there, he wants them to take his words as though it was, as though if he could, he would be there with them at that very moment. Now, later on in verses 9 and 11 of this same chapter, which we haven't gotten to yet, Paul is going to remind the church in Corinth that he had already passed judgment on this kind of matter in a previous letter to them. Remember, we call this letter 1 Corinthians, but there was another letter that came before it. And he wrote in verses 9 through 11, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he goes on to clarify that he was referring to people like the man referred to in verse 1, a professing believer who is walking in sin and refuses to repent of it. But the Corinthians, even though he had warned them of that in a previous letter, they had done nothing about it. Maybe they had been lax because they were thinking there wasn't any urgency about it since Paul was not there to make them do it himself. He was not physically present to back up his judgment. He assures them that his lack of physical presence then does not make his words ring hollow. He is there in spirit, indicating that his physical presence should not be necessary for them to do what is godly and right. The Corinthians cannot afford to delay this judgment any longer. They've got to do what is clear. They've got to do what is commanded in Scripture. They must put out the sinner. So is Paul to be thought of as some kind of omnipresent apostle? No. But Paul does have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. Being in the very nature of God Himself, the Holy Spirit is all places at all times. And it is by the authority and power of the Holy Spirit that Paul and any elder can render judgment and church discipline. And take note how Paul tells them that this judgment should be completed. He gives them three details that should dictate the style of judgment being laid down. He says that it should be laid down in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
the authority that Paul has to render this judgment comes not from his own good name or his reputation or his station. It comes from the one who commissioned Paul, from Jesus himself. Correcting this error will not only hopefully bless the sinner, it will guard the good name of Jesus. Remember, while we absolutely desire the reconciliation of a sinner in matters of church discipline, something that we should desire even more than that is the restoration of the holy name of Christ as people look upon the church that they might not see us harboring sin amongst our members, that we, we would not be seen as taking the word of God and his commands lightly. So they are told to render this judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, this judgment should be completed with the power of the Lord Jesus. So in his name and according to his power, this correction isn't to be done softly or weakly. It's not to be done without confidence that it is the right thing to do. They shouldn't timidly issue this order to the man who is plainly in sin. They should not need to second-guess this judgment because the power of the Lord Jesus himself stands behind the commands that he gives to his people. You and I, we have no right to personally judge one another, but God does. God is our Savior. He is our King. And so his word goes. And he has judged us by writing scripture through his apostles and prophets. So when we read the scripture, we are reading the judgments not of man, but of God himself. We also need to know that God uses his church. He uses his people to express that judgment through the proper application of the word of God, including through the means of church discipline. So a church that does not follow the word, friends, follow along with this, a church that does not think highly of Scripture or only uses it in a sort of inspirational sense but not as the word and rule of standard of conduct, that church cannot practice church discipline with this kind of power because they'd be attempting to render judgments by the wisdom and insight and really by the power of man not by the power of God's Son. When you lay the word of God to the side, you have forfeited your ability and your right to declare what is good and what is evil. We only know that by what God has revealed to us. So they are to do this in the name of Jesus Christ. They are to do it by His power. And then there's one more condition on how they are to render this judgment. The judgment is to be delivered at the hand of the assembled congregation. Look carefully again at verses 4 and 5. At verse 4 it says, When you, plural, are assembled, and then verse 5, you, plural, again, are to deliver this man. What do we learn by that? We learn that church discipline is not the responsibility of one it is not the responsibility of a few. It is the church's responsibility to be done in the name of the Lord and by His mighty power. This is related to the true meaning of the often misquoted verse found in Matthew 18. You've heard it dozens of times. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. These are the words of Christ. And so often people quote those meaning well, but really not in the proper context. That passage of Scripture in which that verse is the capstone is all about church discipline. It's all about the kind of judgments that are being spoken of in 1 Corinthians 5. And so it's not just talking about a prayer circle where two or more have gathered to pray or a small group on the night when barely anybody shows up. Well, at least two of us are here. That means that Jesus' presence is here also. No, what it's referring to in Matthew 18 there is specifically the fact that church discipline is something that the church needs to be together on. We have a responsibility to love one another. And this is one of the key ways that we do that. Church discipline is about community. It's about togetherness and doing it the way that God has called us to do it. So Paul doesn't just say here, I have declared. He says, we, church, must declare. And we must do it in the right name. We must do it by the proper power. 
Though Paul wasn't there in the flesh, the Corinthians couldn't afford to ignore the sin that was threatening the well-being of the church. So Paul had to follow the guidance that Jesus himself had given. He had to insist that they discipline this sinner. Now, if you are not familiar with church discipline, you can go back and read Matthew 18. The gist of it is that we start that process personally. When someone offends or when you see sin uh, prevalent in someone's life that is a professing Christian, you are to go to them face-to-face, one-on-one. You don't go through channels of suggestion. You don't start the rumor mill. You go directly to that believer, and you do that in love and respect. You do so humbly, examining your own heart, and you present that sin that you have noticed to your brother or sister and urge them to repent of it. In that conversation, if you find out that you were wrong about it, that you misperceived something, that there was misunderstanding, or perhaps that the person has already repented, then praise God that the issue is settled. If there is true sin there and the person receives that correction with humility and is willing to turn away from their sin, you help them in that the best you can and then you rejoice for this is the end goal of church discipline, that God's name is kept holy, that his church is not defiled, and that that individual is corrected from something that could harm them. Now, if that does not work, step two is you bring back a brother or sister in the faith, someone who calls upon the name of the Lord and is filled with the Spirit, And the two of you together, two or three of you together, then urge that brother or sister to turn from their sin. If the sin persists, then at that point, after some time of allowing them the the chance to, to, to turn away and letting the Holy Spirit work, at that point you bring that to the congregation. And you let your church know that there is sickness among us and that we need to be praying together about this. We need to be urging our brother or sister who's in sin to repent of this. All the while the door being wide open for return, for repentance, for correction, because the end goal is is not to throw the person away or or to give up on them. The end goal is that God's will would be done in their life. But then there is this fourth step of church discipline. When a person is unrepentant in their sin and rebuts every chance for confession and for repentance, then the last step in order to preserve the church and to give that person one last chance to repent is to put them out of the congregation. Now, it can look different at times. Uh, There are special circumstances where all four steps don't have to be completely covered. Sometimes you can see the sin is, is completely clear. Sometimes a person is a threat to a congregation and must be removed sooner than step three. It can last longer depending on how a person responds. Perhaps there is an initial repentance and some efforts towards uh, beating the sin, but but the person then falls back into it again and you have to repeat some of the steps from time to time. But here we see the verdict in this instance is that this man who has sinned so blatantly that even pagans can see that what he is doing is wretched, that this sinner is to be removed from the congregation. Why? They are to be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh. That's a very interesting phrase. Does it sound ominous to you? It should. It is. It is not some heartless abandonment, however. It is not what happens when you get just beyond 70 times 7. As a professing believer, the man was a part of the blessed community of faith. Now as a recipient of church discipline, he is being turned away from that same community to live once again in the community of unbelievers under the authority of a different father, the father of unbelievers. Now we see something like that in Job, don't we? If you recall that Old Testament book in chapter 2, This is after Satan has already been allowed by God to remove some of Job's blessings. Here in verse 3 of chapter 2, it's the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand, 
and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. Here a man who is blameless and upright before the Lord, God turns him over to Satan in a sense, doesn't he? God seems to deliver Job over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, not unto death, but as a means to see if a man will remain faithful to God, even if his body is afflicted in a terrible way. Job goes through a great deal between chapter 2 and chapter 42. But at the end of that story, what happens to this man? Already described as blameless and upright, the kind of man who feared God and turned away from evil, by the end of this painful ordeal, he gains again more than all that he owned before he had had it taken away. He gains again all the health that he had lost. And even more importantly, his faith in the Lord is increased beyond what it was before. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you, Lord, says Job. In 1 Corinthians 5, does the destruction of the flesh mean that this man who was trapped in sin needed to die? Not necessarily. And Paul himself does not expect that, at least not right away. For he warns the other Corinthians in verse 11 about how they're to limit their interactions with this unrepentant man moving forward. That wouldn't really matter if Paul expected him to die soon. It wouldn't really matter if he expected Satan to crush his flesh and to take away his life immediately. So we must think about this in different terms. The destruction of the flesh is the natural fallout and pain of living apart from the community of faith and away from the blessing of a healthy connection to God. The hope is that what remains of his sinful desires may die. Not that his life might be taken away altogether, but that which is fleshly might be destroyed. That he may learn the hard way, if necessary, that a believer will put off the old man and put on Christ if he truly trusts in Jesus. Colossians 3, 5-10. Apostle Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he goes on to list many of the common earthly sins that afflict man. Verse 7, And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. See, Corinth was not the only church that needed to hear messages like this. Corinth was not the only church that struggles with falling back into the sinful ways that were so common to them before they met Christ. But going on to verse 10, Colossians 3, it says, Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This is the struggle that the Christian must be battling and waging every day, that we don't want to be what we were before we met Christ. And Paul wants this so badly for the Corinthians, that they would understand that by the grace of Christ, they aren't what they used to be. They aren't what they used to be, church. Christian, you're not a liar anymore. You belong to the Father of truth now. You are not a thief anymore if you are in Christ Jesus. In Him, you have all that you need. You're not an alcoholic anymore if you are in Christ. That's not your identity now. The Spirit fills you in a way that drugs cannot fill you. And though that alcohol may continue to call your name, though it might have some kind of a tempting pull upon you, it is not who you are. You are restored to, to newness in Christ. You have the power now in the name of Jesus to overcome the temptation that used to rule you like a master. Christian, you're not at the center of your world anymore. Everything orbits around the Savior now that you have given your life to Him. Can you see that? This man in Corinth either was not saved and could not see that, or he refused to put off the old man and didn't want to see it in the moment. And so Paul did what needed to be done. He said, deliver the sinner over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. 
But the punishment itself is not the final resolution. There is more to the command. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, here in verse 5, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. We know what the day of the Lord is, don't we? It is the day when he returns bodily form to judge the heavens and the earth and to put down all sin once and for all. It is the last stand. So Paul wants this man's soul saved before that last day of judgment. He wants this man's soul saved before his flesh is finally destroyed and his life here on earth comes to an end. The goal then is that the temporal pain that the man has to endure by being separated from God's blessings and from his church family might sting to such a degree that it would wake him up to the severity of the error that he is allowed to enter into his life that it would drive him to repentance before Christ returns to bring final judgment, that it would drive him to repentance before he dies. The kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance, doesn't it? But when that kindness is removed from us, we can see what we are missing, what we have taken for granted. We pray that church discipline doesn't often have to get to this step. But when it is necessary... This is the way that God uses to either reveal a person is not truly a believer or presses on their hearts with such pressure that they feel compelled to return to Him. But you might ask, isn't this harsh? Isn't this unloving? Wouldn't it be more loving to simply endure with that sinner and just hope that maybe one day that person would change their mind and heart? Don't we have more civilized ways to do this now? Isn't there therapy and counseling? Isn't this just giving up on someone? And this is where Paul's sermon last week and our sermon this morning are going to dovetail together very, very cleanly. Remember, Paul had a little bit more to say but had to cut his sermon short relatively speaking, before communion table because we still needed to take the Lord's elements. What seems unloving to the world is actually the only loving response to persistent sin. You might recall in 2 Corinthians 4.4, it's another book um, that was written to the Corinthian church after this current letter chronologically, where the Apostle Paul said, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Who is the God of this world? The so-called God with a little g of this world is Satan, meaning that he has a limited degree of of reign and authority here to do the kinds of things that he did in Job's life on a different scale. That that... God of this world, that Satan has worked very hard to try to blind the minds of unbelievers so that they will not see the light of the gospel. But he is also working hard to blind the eyes of the believer so that we might think that the tools that God has given to us to purge sin from our presence are not good for us. If the world is driven by the slave master of sin, Wouldn't that slave master do everything in his power to make sure that his minions be tolerant of sin so that the very thing that keeps them prisoners will not be eradicated and done away with? It's one of his greatest tools. Why is church discipline a blessing from God? Why is it an act of love and not an act of cruelty? Let me give you three reasons this morning. First of all, church discipline is loving to the individual Christian. It is loving to the individual who has fallen into sin. Church, sin is destructive. Sin hurts us. Even if we don't see it, even if we are self-deceived and think that we can handle the pain that comes with our sin, it continues to degrade and hurt and deceive us. It damages our relationship with Christ. If we are non-believers, sin is the divide that keeps us from Him. It is the very thing that makes us an enemy to God. If we are believers, then sin causes unrest between us and the Father that it has adopted us into His home in such a loving way. It is harmful to our joy. It corrupts the way that we see this world. If you have been praying 
for Sean Linder recently. We are so very grateful for that. If you have not heard, um, it was found recently that Sean had a mass in his colon. He recently had to undergo surgery to have that mass removed, and praise God, that surgery went very well. Uh, in the aftermath of the surgery, they did some assessments, and they have decided that Sean will be beginning chemotherapy as a preventative maneuver to try to make sure that all the cancer was completely removed and that it doesn't make its way into the lymph node system. Uh, they are very confident that there will be a positive result from this chemotherapy. It's going to be a pretty long process. Sean will be doing this for about six months, but we thank you for, for praying for Sean. When the doctor got the initial test result back and found out that Sean had this mass long before the surgery, that was some pretty grim news to share with your patient. It can't be easy to be a doctor and to have to tell those kind of things in and out, day in and day out, to the people that you're serving. He can't enjoy letting people down like that, seeing the concern on their face, watching them grow tense, seeing the tears well up in the eyes of the people that he has to tell are, are very sick and are facing very potential consequences because of their cancer. Do you think that doctor might be tempted to tell his patients, you know, don't worry, everything's okay. You seem to be in good health. You're getting by fine. I'm sure you have a long life before you. It might even seem to be the loving thing to do, to, to spare them all the heartache of the, the procedures and all the heartache of the worries and the counting down of days. But let's be honest. We both know that would not be loving. That would be utterly selfish of a doctor to do that, to not tell the truth just to spare themselves the grief of having to make someone sad. The loving thing to do was to tell Sean his true diagnosis. The loving thing to do was to take every measure necessary to remove that cancer from his body. The loving thing to do, no matter how inconvenient, no matter how difficult it might be, would be to follow up with that. If necessary, with chemotherapy or radiation or whatever treatments necessary to eradicate that cancer, if it was possible, to remove it from his body. All of these things are going to hurt. But all are not only necessary, they are loving to Sean because we want Sean well. And there is a means by which he can become well. We want him to overcome. If Sean, our brother, is hurting and sick, we are hurting and sick too. And the same goes for a believer's sin, friends. If we trust the Word of God and we see sin in the life of a brother or a sister, we cannot afford to turn away and hope that it will pass. If we love them, we help them see that problem. We turn them to the solution of that problem. We give them the chance to accept treatment and, if necessary, we remove the sin. <coughs> Second reason why. Church discipline is loving not only for the individual, but for the church body as well. Church discipline is loving for the church body. And that is because sin doesn't have isolated effects, does it? No. It hurts the offender, but it also hurts the person offended. One of Satan's most dangerous lies, if you eat of the fruit, you shall not surely die. So go ahead and sin. It's not really going to sting you. But another is this, that we should allow each individual the freedom to obey or disobey God so long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. You've heard that before, haven't you? What's wrong with what I'm doing? I'm not hurting anyone else. My friend, that kind of sin does not exist. Every sin hurts someone else. First and foremost, our sin is an offense to God. So the man who can sin in a corner away from everyone else and doesn't seem to be hurting anybody else or impinging on their freedoms is offending the living God. So it offends the church that that sin offends the living God. Secondly, sin is not clean and tidy. It will hurt whatever it touches. Since we can't each live on our own private islands, we've got to contend with the fact that sin not only hurts the sinner, but anyone that that sinner loves, and often even people that sinner does not love. The effects of sin 
are pervasive. Like cancer, again, cancer that can begin in one isolated part of the body, but can quickly spread to another. And if diligence isn't taken to eradicate that cancer, it can get into the blood system. It can become systemic. And that is why cancer is so often compared to leaven or yeast in the Bible. That's why the cancer of sin is so often compared to yeast. When you take a lump of dough and you put just a little bit of yeast in it, that little bit of yeast has an effect that spreads throughout the lump so that the whole body of dough begins to rise and begins to form itself differently. It affects it in such a way that no part is left untouched. If we as Christians have confessed together that God is real, that salvation is only found in His Son, and that we only, the only way that we can reliably know Him and draw near to Him is according to what He's revealed to us in His Word, then we can be confident in this. James 5, 19-20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of his sins. In order to be brought back, sometimes you have to be put out so you can see the severity of what you have done. And this is the means by which Jesus has taught us to bring the wanderer back. Paul sets the example by putting it in faithful practice here in the church, church in Corinth. So I've given you two reasons. Church discipline is loving for the individual. Church discipline is loving for the church. And a third reason, church discipline is loving for the one who loves us most. It is loving to Christ. Even if you could convince yourself that it was best to just let a sinner dwell in their sin and to let that sinner stay within the children of God with their sin unchecked, can you see the dishonor that it would do to Jesus and to his name? In Ephesians 5, we almost always hear this passage referred to because it instructs a husband, a godly husband, to love his wife properly. It props Christ and the way that Christ loves the church up as an example to help a husband love his wife better. But let's isolate that for a second and just look at the principle that is used as an example. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Think about Christ's love for his church. <coughs> Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Do you see God's heart for his church? Do you see Christ's love for his bride? Do we share the respect and love for the church that Christ has for her? Do we have a driving desire for her purity, for her sanctity? Do we care to keep her from sin? Do we want her unstained from the world in which we live? If we do, let us determine that our love should be without hypocrisy, that we will love what is good, clinging to it with all of our might, and that we would hate what is wicked and make no room for unrepentant sin in God's church. If it is so scripturally obvious that church discipline is loving, then why is our culture almost universally repulsed by church discipline? Why do people almost always want to resist the application of these passages in the modern church today. We see a clue in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. So backing up just a little bit to last week. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. Think for a second about the tone that Paul uses in this verse. What is his attitude towards sin? He's shocked by it, isn't he? It's startling to him. When we don't consider sin shocking, we don't see it as deadly, there will be little to no urgency to do anything real about it. Do you know what the most 
deadly animal in the world is? Now, I'm talking animals here. I think bees are probably more deadly in a wide range, but I think mosquitoes are actually the most deadly creature in the world because of their ability to transmit diseases. But the most deadly animal in the world is actually hippopotamus, which makes people laugh sometimes because they're such a big, doughy animal. But a hippopotamus is very aggressive, very powerful, and very territorial. They tend to not have the kind of fear of man that other large predatory animals have, and they tend to share the same important common areas in nature, such as rivers and waterways. More people die from hippopotamus attacks each year than from great white sharks, and it's not even close. Now, I watched a news clip about a man who was recently killed by a hippo, and that might not seem like that big of a news clip if that happens pretty frequently, but the tragedy of this particular story was this. The hippo that killed him was his pet. He had come across this hippo when it was a pup in the, in the wild. He had connected to it. Apparently its mother had died, so he began to feed it. He reared the, pip, the hippo. He brought it up kind of in his backyard area. It li he lived right next to a river. And so these, this hippo and this man became like fast friends. He became a bit of a celebrity because people could not believe how friendly this hippo was to the man. And as this animal grew, the danger seemed more and more obvious to everyone except for the man. All of his friends began to say, you know, this was, this was a cute trick back when the hippo was a pup, but now that it's full grown, you really need to separate yourself from this animal. But as he watched it grow, he was so familiar and so comfortable with this animal that he was quite confident it would never do anything to harm him until it was too late. The hippo one day turned on him and took his life. See, part of what makes church discipline so shocking to us is that we have often grown up with sin. It has been exposed to us so frequently and so consistently that the, the startling nature of it has lost its edge to us. May the Word of God change that in us, brothers and sisters. May the Lord God remind us that sin is a heinous and ugly thing that has no place in our eternal existence. May God remind us that He is a holy God without spot, without blemish or wrinkle. Let us not become so numb to our sin that we begin to accept it as some casual thing. Sin should shock us, but not only when we see it from the perspective of looking down our nose at someone else, as though we ourselves are immune to sin, for we are not. Let us be most shocked when we see sin in ourselves, when we have the Word of God open before us, and we read a command that we ourselves have been ignoring. May it pierce us to the heart. May it knock the wind out of us to see that we have been behaving in a way that requires suffering on behalf of Jesus. Every sin that you commit equates in a real and painful way to the punishment that Jesus endured on the cross to save his people. Do you realize that? I have heard some balk at the idea that being in Christ frees us entirely from the debt of sin. Impossible, they claim. If that was true, then surely Christians would just run around doing whatever sinful thing that they wanted. I'm covered by the blood of Jesus, they would claim. I don't have to worry about the law anymore. His grace is sufficient for me. And that would almost certainly be the case if the salvation that comes to us by the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating our hearts, if it did not equate to the radical change of heart that it does. That would be the way Christians thought of salvation if salvation didn't cause us to see that no one loves us like Jesus loves us. And that if we ought to not love anyone with the kind of love that we give to Jesus alone. That was a foreign concept to our minds before regeneration. But with the onset of salvation, we have been made new. What was the old self is now dead and buried. Our new identity in Christ is distinctly different. When you love someone, you don't want them to suffer. You don't take their pain and their shame lightly. If you know that the agony that Jesus endured when he went to the cross directly correlates to the wicked deeds that you have done and may still be doing, 
then it should shock you when you see yourself behaving in such a way that it might contribute to that bloody tragedy. And so let us be shocked, church, because we know the full weight of sin, because we understand how ugly it is, because thanks to the work of the Holy Spirit, we now know that sin kills, that because of sin, death has entered into the creation. Because the Holy Spirit dwells in us now as believers, we know that sin separates us from God, that God being holy cannot be near to that which is defiled. We can see that sin defiles and deceives us, that it corrupts us from the inside out and keeps us from seeing things the proper way. We understand that sin wants to rob glory from God, that it wants to call beautiful what God has called heinous. We see that sin brings shame and guilt upon man, that it divides what God wants to bring together. And so let us be shocked, not only because we know the weight of sin, but because we know the full weight of what Christ did to erase it and defeat it. Sin kills, but Jesus died in our place so that we might put to death, death. It was not a small price that Jesus paid to free us from our sin. Let us not treat it like a cheap thing. Because our, our sinful unholiness, we could not dare to approach God on our own. But because of the intercession of Jesus Christ, because He lived in the flesh and fulfilled the law, and because He was willing to die on the cross like a sinner in our place, God's only begotten has abolished the separation that sin created between us and God. He has bridged the divide. What was defiled in us has been washed away by His blood. The deception we once lived under is being removed by the truth that the gospel brings us with open eyes before the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit of God helps the elect to see sin for the shocking thing that it is. Since Christ alone is able to save us, all the glory is reserved for God Himself. What we would have tried to rob from God is kept secure by His sure victory on the cross. And when as redeemed, forgiven children of God, we find the ugliness of sin once again settling into our lives and into ourselves, let us turn quickly to the solution, which is still and only ever has been Jesus Christ. Go to your mediator, friend. Confess your sin to him. Carry that burden on your own shoulders no more. You don't have to hide your sin and act as though it has no hold upon you. Rather, pull it from the darkness. Declare that your sin has been crucified on the cross with your Savior, that in becoming a curse for you, Jesus effectively bore not only your guilt, but your shame as well. And now you can stand before the Lord God, freed from that affliction. It is for the glory of this holy and pure Savior that we look carefully after His church. It is for this holy and pure Jesus that we cannot stand the thought of making room for ongoing unrepentant sin among his people. Let us pray together. Holy God, we pray that we would not reject the very tools you have given to us to grow in maturity and truth. Lord, we know we are not yet what we need to be. So Father, there are things that exist in our life. There are ideas in our minds that need to be stripped away. There are temptations that we have not yet allowed to be stopped by the love that you've put into our hearts. So God, I pray that you would do that work of mortifying the flesh, that you would help us to hate what is wicked in ourselves. And if we truly come to hate what is wicked in ourselves, Lord God, then we will not run away or become offended. We will not strike back when a brother or sister in love comes to give us the wounds of friends, that a brother and sister in love comes to confront us in our sin and to offer their help and their prayer and their support as we battle it together. I pray, Lord God, that you would help your believers to understand church discipline as, as a wonderful means by which you show your church that no, you will not give up on the believer that you also help us to understand that the believer is going to give up on sin. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we will not continue to be what we were before. 
So God, please have patience with us. But let us not use patience as a cloak for indifference. I pray, Lord God, that we would be swift to engage in these concepts, that we would follow the pattern that Scripture has set, and that we would give you all the glory as we call upon your name and your power to do what you have called us to do. We thank you for all these things, God. Praying that you would bring back those who have been put out from us, that you would give them salvation for the first time or rekindle the fire that has grown dim in their hearts. We love them and miss them. We pray, Lord God, that it would be very rare that we ever have to experience that again in our church. But we know, Lord God, that if it happens, it happens by the direction of your scripture. Thank you for all these things, God. We glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, church. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He alone will do it. Go in peace. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Amen.